we're back for season four of DNA Discoveries in Action. Over the course of four episodes, we'll hear from a multitude of experts from Vanderbilt University Medical Center who will help us explore how flashes of ideas turn into guiding lights. Join us as the DNA podcast journeys through the future of work and how yesterday's ideas are shaping the healthcare of tomorrow right now. Listen to DNA wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I take care of a lot of Filipino Americans who are nurses. Do you ever wonder how there came to be so many Filipino Americans in the nursing profession? Here's Devin, a community organizer in the Filipino community. Uh, it goes back to the justification for America taking over the Philippines during the Filipino-American War. We must civilize and educate the heathen so they can take care of themselves. America is trying to be this benevolent colonizer. So there's all this current moral thinking that established an education system in the Philippines. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back to Healthcare for Humans. I'm Dr. Sundar, your host, and today we're revisiting one of our original podcast themes focusing on an identity of a specific community. Today, our focus is on a community that often gets overlooked in the broader narrative, the Filipino-American community. Before we dwell into this episode, I think it's worth highlighting. In conversations about Asians, Filipino-Americans often tend to take a backseat, which often earns them the title of the quote-unquote forgotten Asians. It's not really an intentional oversight, but more of a historical nuance rooted in the complex narratives that have made their story overall less visible. Today, we're going to change that. You'll hear from Devin Cabanilla, a community organizer for the Filipino community who's been instrumental in the development of a Filipino-American curriculum for schools. He's also an officer in the Filipino-American National Historical Society in the Washington area. One other thing, let's briefly step back into the past before we start this episode. The Philippines, with its 7,000 islands, endured Spanish colonization for 300 years, spanning from the 16th century to the late 19th century. This extended period left an indelible mark on Filipino culture, identity, and even connections to Latino heritage, which we don't talk about enough. After that, the story unfolds with the United States defeating Spain in the Spanish-American War in 1898. The subsequent colonial era lasted over 40 years and concluded with the Philippines gaining independence in 1946. So, Spanish colonization, then American colonization, then finally independence in 1946. This colonial history, marked by both Spanish and American influences, significantly shapes the experiences of Filipino-Americans today. Despite their historical significance, though, Filipino-Americans often find themselves in the shadows. 
This is compounded by their diverse experiences, sometimes challenging common perceptions of Asians. Asians, after all, are just Chinese, Japanese, and Indians, right? Yeah, that's not true, but you'd be surprised on how many folks think that specifically when you say Asians. On top of that, their connections to Latino identity, as I said, forged during centuries of Spanish colonization, adds even more layers to this community's identity. In today's context, Filipino Americans contribute so much to healthcare, constituting 25% of all new foreign-born nurses in the United States, many of whom I actually meet as caregivers for my patients in different healthcare settings. This episode is part one of a two-part episode that's going to help bridge the gap, providing historical context and understanding about the Filipino community. This episode will review history of the community, and our next episode will focus on tradition and culture. Here's Devin. Okay, Devin, tell us about yourself. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Raj. My name is Devin Israel Cabanilla, and I am a uh, fourth-generation Filipino-American. I currently am an administrator in the school system. And I do a lot of Asian American advocacy work locally. I'm part of a organization called Make Us Visible that is seeking to make Asian American history required in academic studies from K through 12. And additionally, I'm also a member of the Filipino American National Historical Society. I'm excited to have you on today. I think. One thing that resonated with me about what you said was about the invisibility of the Asian American community. I think we talk about that a lot. I find that it's especially true for the Filipino community, or at least when I'm reading about it. And as we're talking about this specific part of the Asian American community, Filipinos, I think there's a sense that we don't talk about this community as much. I'm not sure what the reason for that is. Do you know why we end up having that sense? The Issue with being forgotten has been a running theme for decades. And I attribute that to several things. You can look at one of the landmark Filipino ethnic studies books is called Filipinos, Forgotten Asian Americans. Filipinos, Forgotten Asian Americans is written by Fred Cordova, one of the first Asian American scholars out of the civil rights movement, we associate Asia in a very orientalist viewpoint, uh, the recurring stereotype and somewhat joke. So are you Chinese or Japanese if you say you're Asian and there's nothing in between? And the other aspect to that isolation is when the rest of the Asian American community is ignoring you. After a while, you just give up on trying to be part of that. Yes, Filipinos eat rice. Yes, Filipinos have noodles. Yes, Filipinos have their own egg roll. And then Filipinos also look very different. The typology of who is Filipino is very wide. And when you get into this idea that there's more than just one thing, people reject that. Be like, I just want to know if you're Chinese or Japanese. And neither I'm Filipino. 
And also the other thing that's interesting is throughout American history, there have largely been many more Filipinos coming to the United States, at least during the 20th century, than Chinese or Japanese. Let's start with the diversity of the country. I like to start here because when people hear Philippines or Filipino, often their understanding, and probably mine too, is very narrow. But Philippines itself is like over 7,000 islands, right? They're divided uh, into three parts, but there's over 7,000 islands. And Filipino or Tagalog is the national language of the Philippines. English was introduced during U.S. occupation. It's a second language. But there's over 100 dialects, right? There's Ilocano, I think Bisaya. And then just the idea of who are the Filipino people the National Geographic Project, which concluded in 2016, said that the Filipinos carry genetic markers from Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia, Southern Europe, Southern Asia. So there's just a mix of a lot of genetic markers there. So the identity of Filipino community is itself complex. What do you think? Yeah, complexity of the Philippines itself is becoming more pronounced because as the diaspora of Filipinos around the world expands, there's this introspection that's occurring right now about where are we from, who are we supposed to be, and a large part of Filipinos abroad is causing this question. I am in Ilocano mainly. I'm actually a mix, but I mainly speak uh, Ilocano at home with my relatives. And the typology of Filipinos in America is different based on geography and history. So the beginning of the 20th century, 1920s to 1950s, largely northern Ilocano Filipinos were, were coming about. Tagalog people are the larger mainstream group in the Philippines. And some of that is due to political reasons. Tagalog being created as a national language. And then when you get to the deep south of the Philippines, they are Muslim, which is a large contrast to a majority Christian nation. And then historically, for centuries, it was part of a sultanate. And that, maybe pause here to let people know that Christianity is the national religion. Because Roman Catholicism is over 80% of the population, as you're noting, in the northern Philippines. Yeah. So yeah. just to note that, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. And yeah, as a result of colonization, there's Christianity is a large part of the nation. But the South, it was governed by Muslim rulers and part of a sultanate for a long period of time. And that this extension of the South as more closely related to Malaysia, Indonesia, those aspects of culture and history are definitely obvious. In the North, you also have, besides different regional language groups from China as well, there's the Hokkien community of China, nomadic merchant Chinese uh, that have influenced 
the entire southern region of Asia from Singapore, Taiwan, Malaysia, and then also the Philippines. And there are many Filipino names that are also Chinese Filipino that have been part of the Philippines historically and culturally for centuries as well. There are areas where people don't speak the national language Filipino or Tagalog. I can only speak Ilocano. And when I travel abroad, when people ask me, are you Filipino? I say, no, I'm Ilocano. Yeah, so interesting. And I think this, the point for me here is that the country is diverse, one, and your experience of your home country is different depending on which part of the country, even if it's Tagalog and Ilocano, just two things that I hear often. So mm -hmm. if somebody says I'm Filipino and speak Tagalog, doesn't necessarily mean they had the exact same experience or migration patterns or background or values even compared to if they're, say, Ilocano or from the southern Philippines or something like that. And I want to note that you have no notes in front of you. You're just saying this at the top of your head. I was oh, watching yeah. you this whole time. Yeah, I was impressed. The other thing that you're reminding me of is region and language. And I'm thinking about how many languages do my relatives speak? On average, there are a lot of people I've met who speak three or four languages. In the Philippines. Yeah. Let's do this. I like to do a brief history, which doesn't do justice to uh -huh. the complexity of history overall, of the home country that we're talking about. And for the Philippines, I think you talked about some of this U.S. occupation, colonialism, but let's give some context to this, in that Really, Philippines wasn't Philippines until 1543, when Spanish explorer Ruy Lopez named the islands in honor of Philip de Spain. Yeah. And that's where the identity of Philippines started. And then it was a Spanish colony for 300 years. That's what supposedly led to Catholicism being the dominant religion there. So until 1896, it was a Spanish colony. And then... With the Spanish-American War, uh, around 1896, with the Philippine Revolution, the islands uh, were ceded by Spain with Puerto Rico and Guam to the U.S. or the American government. Mm -hmm. There were like over 250,000 deaths, but it started the period of American colonization from 1900 to 1934, which is, I think, the period you're referring to where Filipinos were t technically Americans and they were able to come to the U.S., compared to some of the other immigrant populations. And that was true until 1939, where Japan invaded Philippines, established it as a puppet state until the Allied troops defeated the Japanese, all those chain of events, mm -hmm. until 1945. And some stats say over 1 million Philippines died through that whole process. So those are key dates that I want people to remember. Yeah. The 300 years of Spanish occupation, then 30 years of American colonization. Is that highlight some of the major history points, Devin? Yep, yep. Uh, that covers a lot of it. And then the other element that's often missing from the books is knowledge about pre-Philippine cultural historical activity. Before the area, it was called the Philippines. The Spanish actually called it the Island of Painted People. Body tattoos were the common identification of class, status, and um, relationship for people. 
Yeah, we do that in every country. I feel like we erase the indigenous community there. Yeah. And just start from the history of when it was named a specific country like Philippines. Yeah. Thanks for acknowledging that. But I think the other element to the Philippines that's very frequently forgotten is this influence from Malaysia, from the main continent. The writing of the Philippines was largely based on script that came from South Asia. It's called Bai Bayin. Now we're trying to bring it back. The other element that I was raising earlier about Malaysia, South Asia, East Asia, all funneling into the Philippines, those cultural practices then spread out into the Pacific. Samoa, Hawaii, Tonga, all of them have these cultural traditions that also involve tattooing, that source can arguably say, have a beginning in the Philippines. The way that you put a tattoo into somebody's body in the Philippines is somewhat similar to how it's done in the Pacific. So there are other elements throughout the rest of the world that we're not recognized for. Everything we have is mixed. It can be both everything and multiple things at once. It's, I think that concept is hard for people to understand. It came out in the Pacific Islander episode too. Yeah. That things can be true in multiple ways. Yes. And I think we're so conditioned and think of black and white. Okay. So we got the history of the Philippines. Now I want to connect it to the migration history or immigration history. People love breaking up immigration history into waves. And I think Filipino immigration pattern also has waves. Yeah. You so said the first wave is around 1900s or so because of the Pensionado Act, mm-hmm. which provided funds for Filipino students to study in America. This is a specific way because it was a special group of privileged elite young men who came to the U.S. as government-sponsored scholars. And to link that into the history of Philippines, we just said 1900 to 1934 was American colonization. So very early on, there was this wave of elite privileged students coming to study here. Anything to say about that? Yes. When occupation of the Philippines began, there was a wave. But I think where some of the wider misperception exists is it was not just elite people who wanted to be students. There were people who traveled to America on a student pension plan that was funded by Congress. U.S. Congress provided funds to pay for um, these students to, to travel here. But there were also many Filipinos who decided to come of their own accord and go to college on purpose without being part of the pension program. So the wave of students who came was not exclusively due to the, the pension program. Because of American occupation and the status of Filipinos as nationals, there were two different things occurring at a time. A very high demand for living the American dream because prior to the 1920s, there was a decade of Americans telling Filipinos, you must become civilized and follow the American way. The government pension program was one element. But there was also 
a cross-national fever to get to America and go to college. And we have these records of there's a giant student mailing list that was called the Filipino Student Bulletin. And it was a periodical that was transmitted from the 20s to 1940s. And it shows the rosters of any Filipino from Berkeley to NYU. And they had their own periodical that they were making before the internet, which is fascinating to me. But in the articles, you can see messages of, oh, Jojo in New York decided to take the semester off and become a dishwasher. He will resume back again in the next semester. So there's these very common stories that are not elitist or privileged amongst these students that were occurring. And then even laborers would come here with the pretext of, I will work just enough to go to college. But then the after effect being, this is very ironic. People would go to law school and then find out, I can't practice law in America because I'm brown. I'm not allowed to. What did I just do? And that effect still occurs today, depending on the level of professional degree, where this concept of, I was told education is a gateway to anything, unless you're this kind of person. There's this invisible bamboo ceiling that exists. It, we have equality of opportunity. Not really. Yeah. People think of it that we do. But as you said, there's all these complexities to it. So correction, not just the elite, students came for the first wave. The second wave was during the 1920s. There's a few terms that I read. One is the Sakata system and the Pinoy's farmers in California. The Sakata system were plantation workers contracted to work in the sugar and pineapple fields of Hawaii. The Pinoy uh, were factory workers in the Alaskan fishing and canary industries. But both of this was around the time where U.S. needed unskilled labor. And for the Filipinos, it was looking for better opportunities. Is that correct? The cicadas were largely Hawaiian plantation work. And then the term Pinoy, that one to be a little bit careful with. Pinoy in general has become a sort of term du jour amongst Filipinos. It basically means American Filipino. If I were to go to the Philippines and I identified myself as Pinoy, it would basically be me saying, no, I'm American. So it's become a new term, meaning someone who's Filipino-American. The other element of the origin of Pinoy stems from the laborers and labor unions of California. And what you've heard about it trending towards Alaska is because the nature of labor along the West Coast was you would follow the labor trail from California into Alaska. So there was a seasonal flow of Filipinos. So the term Pinoy exists in Alaska as well as in San Francisco because those same workers would work crops when they were in season and then do fishing labor in the off season. 
away from California. And then the additional element to labor for Filipinos specifically is they did not just have labor unions, but they also allied themselves, largely men, into fraternal organizations. So the other aspect about the influx of Filipinos that I want to note is that there were men and they were the majority. Women did exist, but they came and the ratio of men to women was very wide. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And I think it's helpful to note here because it was in the 20s where Philippines was occupied by the U.S., the Asian Exclusion Act of 1924 curtailed immigration from Chinese and Japanese to the U.S., but it did not affect Filipinos because they were considered nationals rather than quote-unquote aliens. So- yeah. And I, I, I think it's very interesting that we, we hear this term second-class citizen, but the United States really does have a second class of citizenship. It's called national. And I I think a lot of people forget that. Filipinos were second class citizens legally. And the the layover of that is Puerto Rican. Uh, So this issue of who is a second class citizen still exists today through the results of the Spanish-American War. So important to call that out. Yeah. Okay. We got two more waves. The third wave was 1934 onward, because in 1934, the Tidings-McDuffie Act promised independence to the Philippines and changed the status of Filipinos from nationals to aliens, quote-unquote, limiting the number of uh, people accepted into the country to 50 per year. So curtailed that immigration, so that dropped again. And in 1935, the Filipino Repatriation Act passed. The act called for the government to pressure Filipinos to return by offering them free passage back to the Philippines. More than 2,000 or 3,000 Philippines had returned to the Philippines during this time. So this third wave was actually in the opposite direction, where the U.S. curtailed immigration and essentially was forcing people to return to their own country. And there were a few other things happening during this time with World War II, because combination of war brides where U.S. military dependents were brought back. And then in 1946, President Truman signed the Filipino Naturalization Bill, enabling Filipinos to become citizens. And then in 1965, we've mentioned this in prior episodes, it was a huge year because Congress amended the Nationality Act and lifting national quotas. So we covered a lot there, but just to highlight, one was limiting immigration, sending Filipinos back, and then World War II, encouraging war brides to come back to the U.S., and then finally the quota being lifted in 1965, which starts the fourth wave, which we'll talk about. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, and uh, I I think one thing that's interesting is how in Filipino-American history, we don't look at it in terms of migration waves, we look at it in terms of generations. In Filipino-American history, you have the uh, pensionados, like you've mentioned, there's an overlap between pensionados and the Manong generation. So our very first set of Filipino-American histories, we call the Manong generation. Then after that, we have the pioneer generation, which are 
the children of the Manong generation. So a high degree of what we call the second generation Filipinos that came from the pensionados and the laborers, they are largely mixed Filipino Americans who mothers are white, mothers are Native American. We have a very specific ethnic group within the Filipino American community that are called Indipinos. We now call them in, indigenous Filipinos, but we have a very key recognized group between both Native American and Filipino American Indipinos. So a lot of my cousins are Indipinos. And if you say Indipino in a reservation in the Pacific Northwest, they will say, yeah, I'm Indipino too. And so there's a mainstream view of history. Our Asian American view of history looks at it in terms of our generation flow. So now we have this generation flow. Then World War II happens. There's another act called the 1946 Rescission Act where your citizenship is rescinded. And then also Filipino U.S. soldiers have their rights rescinded from the GI Bill. So you have guys who are bringing back brides from the Philippines. They might be American or Filipino. A lot of them are American white guys who are bringing back Filipino women. And they're also Filipino guys who got married when they were on special assignment coming back to America. So there's that difference as well. The Recession Act is very triggering because to this day, there are Filipino World War II veterans who were denied GI benefits or right of citizenship right of benefit, war pay. It's the only ethnic group for people who participated in serving the U.S. military that were denied benefits of the GI Bill because of the Recession Act uh, passed by Harry Truman. When 1965 hit, there's a culture clash of Filipino Americans, World War II Americans with new Filipinos and 1965 is a very important year because it represents a culture clash between inter-Filipino generations. Yeah, very interesting. It's yeah. a different perspective that makes sense for people living in the community. They're not going to talk about waves of immigration. You say, hey, let's my father's generation or my grandfather's generation who came because of this reason and this mm -hmm. context. So let's go to 1965, because afterwards, this culture clash you mentioned, tell me if this is accurate, because what I'll say the literature, people who have written about this topic say is that after 1965, highly educated professionals, mostly in healthcare, came. In addition, in the mid-1970s, economic and political refugees from the Marcos regime and short-stay visitors like contract workers, tourists, there's just a lot more diversity of the type of people who came from the Philippines after 1965 until the 1990s or so. Yeah, yeah. Because 1990, finally, the aging World War II veterans were given instant American citizenship because of an unfulfilled promise to grant them U.S. citizenship for fighting for the Allies in World War II. Many of the elderly Filipino immigrants who had migrated to the U.S. had less professional occupational backgrounds. So there's different types of 
communities. I, I think you were mentioning culture clash. I think I want to focus on two things here. Maybe this is the time to focus on it. There are a lot of Filipinos in healthcare, primarily nurses and CNAs, probably nurses back home. And I talk to them. And it's such a common theme. I want to just hear about how that came to be. It's linked to the history of U.S. occupation. I think you mentioned a little bit, but let's dig deeper into that. To the culture clash that you're talking about, what does that look like? Yeah, for first, in terms of the history of why there are Filipinos who have professional medical technical education, healthcare, and shortages in healthcare were also occurring post Spanish flu in America. They were trying to backfill a labor shortage that was existing globally. And ah, we have this pandemic. Now we need to fill in those people. 25,000 nurses, I think, came in from 65 through the 90s in the United States. And that's just counting migrant medical Philippines to U.S. transfer. You also have all the Filipinos in the United States who were the children of existing Filipino Americans who also entered the medical field. And to transition that to your second question about what's this culture clash, one thing that's very fascinating is you have this clash of laborers who tried to go to college and were not let in. Then you have people who stayed in the Philippines, went through their education, and then got let in later. A really famous example of this is a Filipino named Pedro Flores. He went to UC Berkeley. Pedro Flores, in 1920, is the inventor of the toy we call the yo-yo. He could not practice law. He became a busboy at a hotel. Someone saw him playing with a yo-yo, which is an Ilocano word. And is, you know what? Why am I going to Berkeley? People keep on asking me to use this toy that I brought back from home. I'm just going to make this toy here and sell it. So the Duncan Yo-Yo Company was originally called the Flores Yo-Yo Company. Duncan bought it from Pedro Flores because Pedro Flores couldn't get through the education system here. I can't be a lawyer in America through UC Berkeley. Transition that to 65, you have people who are engineers, nurses, teachers. These technical professional groups are by and large coming back into the U.S. And then Filipinos who are already here, they're deeply Americanized. They grew up through the 1950s. They work in shipyards. They're farmers, fishermen, what have you. And then these new Filipinos show up. They are not used to blue-collar people. So you have this blue-collar versus white-collar exchange that's occurring. And then the additional element is now you have a group of Filipinos pre-1965 who are conflicting with post-1965 people. So during the 70s and 80s, there is a conflict of traditional Filipinos and American Filipinos. Which values are you going to have? 
this conflict occurs violently and deadly in the 1980s. This conflict is very widely known in Seattle. The murders of Domingo and Viernes by the Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos split the community in Seattle of pro-American Union people versus pro-Philippines nationalists, post-65 people. So you have pre-65 laborers versus post-65 Philippine nationalists. And um, people were shot and died because they were on different sides of the fence in Seattle. This divide between Americanized Filipinos and uh, more traditional Filipinos. Do you feel like that culture clash is still there in 2023? I feel like that culture clash is happening still. Um, It's less effective for me because I am the child of those two different sides. As a fourth generation Filipino, that's not my fight anymore. (laughs) Yeah, on one side of my family, I, I, I come from Manong generation people, World War II war bride people. Then on the other side of my family, I come from post-65 people. And yeah, for me, that's those two places coincide in me. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you liked this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu and Maharazaki for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.